it was very, very sudden. It was very, very unexpected. I can't begin to tell you how shocking it was. And I very quickly realised that I now was a single parent and I didn't understand what had happened. I didn't understand anything at that point. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. This week, I am joined by Angela Samata. This episode's a little bit harder hitting than your usual Burn Chef Journal episode, as she joins us to talk about the documentary that she put together and presented, Life After Suicide, which was nominated by the BBC for a BAFTA. In this documentary, she describes her own experience and that of her children after her partner Mark took his own life 20 years ago. Not many people know that Mark was actually a chef and Angela is a passionate campaigner and advocate for addressing suicide and stigma around suicide. So the conversation is heavily revolved around this particular subject matter, but it was so enjoyable chatting to Angela. I couldn't think of anyone better for this conversation and it was an absolute pleasure to have her on board. The Burnt Chef Project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston, a leading provider of innovative, high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, Head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. I'm trying to get a bit better at managing the diary and managing my energy levels, I suppose, really. And also, I also realise that sometimes when, you know, the same as you when I do interviews or get involved with different projects, I'm absolutely knackered at the end of it. And I think I just thought I could carry on going and going and going. But actually just trying to make sure that I don't just because the day looks clear in the diary trying not to put too much stuff in because I just end up being completely wiped at the end of the week so yeah just trying to be a bit more careful about things but I'm not quite sure how successful I'm being in that. <laughs> that's tricky I've noticed that one of my team members has started putting in out of office days into my diary and I get to the day and I was like why am I out of the office today what's happening and she was like nothing you've got nothing on today it's your day do what you want and I'm like okay I'll take that it's like a little blessing from time to time just have a day where you go oh fuck yeah I don't have to do anything today or I can catch up on the 82 emails and the the projects that I've just been put into one side you know no absolutely absolutely it's just so good to have catch-up time I think and yeah we put a post out actually that resonated quite my social media marketing manager, she's just incredible. And she put a post out about it's okay to say no and empowering people to say no, because especially in the service industry, we're so used to saying, yes, of course, like whatever we can do for you. And I read it and I was like, oh yeah, perhaps it is okay to actually say no and, and to give yourself a little bit of a breathing space, which I know isn't always the case. Sometimes you have to keep going, but to know that you are a human being with the power to be able to say no is, is important, right? 
Absolutely. And I think what I'm finding is when I'm working across lots of different industries, so because I work in the arts and also I work in mental health as well, and obviously have my own lived experience of being bereaved by suicide, because I work across lots of different industries, what I've noticed is that the kind of hospitality industry and people who work in kitchens and across hospitality kind of wide, the traits are kind of very similar. Like we're real people pleasers. We do it because we love it. We do it because we're trying to give people a really good time. We're doing it because exactly the same motivation as like nurses and police. And I see the same motivation across so many different industries. It is that kind of really wanting to look after people, to problem solve, to give them the best time to kind of make their lives a little bit better just for that short time that we have the interaction with them. And actually, it can mean that sometimes we're not having the best time. <laughs> so, But I think you kind of constantly want to put out, put out, put out. And I think it's a natural, yeah, it seems to be something that I'm seeing like a lot with across lots of the different people that I work with. Just not so good at making sure we're having a good time, really. Yeah, well, I just suppose we're never taught. And I guess that's what COVID has done in a, a bit of a way that actually has given us that moment of, oh, hold on a second, health is wealth at this moment in time. It's not all about doing it until I bust a gut because we know from experience now that that doesn't work. And I still think that there is that, we've got hundreds of years of that culture. You just keep going, you'll you'll be fine, you know, you'll just, especially with that macho, macho perhaps stoicism that we have, for all the right and wrong reasons, have, have adopted. It just now means that we've just got to keep yeah, we feel like we've got to keep pu- pushing on because we feel guilty if we don't continue to to keep driving forward, often at the detriment of ourselves. It's just bonkers. <laughs> it's just mad. So my heritage is Greek. Um, so my father was Greek Cypriot and my mum's from Italian heritage. So we're all about the food, all about the, you know, lots of macho stuff going on. But then I realised that macho actually means fight in Greek so ancient Greek it was the word for fight and for battle and I think that is the kind of culture that we're looking at but actually sometimes it's not just a male thing I think sometimes in Greek culture Greek women kind of crack on you know that everything could be falling down around and they can be dealing with like huge massive life events but they will still make sure there's dinner on the table they will still hold the household together I think sometimes kind of we're as guilty as the men in our lives really for kind of getting up and cracking on and putting your game face on and powering on through whatever it is. So for me, it's not just a male issue. It's a, it's an issue that I think goes across kind of, I don't think it's got a gender boundary here. I think sometimes women, I don't know, we're, sometimes we're the glue that holds people and places and restaurants and whatever it is and households together. But I think sometimes, I don't know, we, we kind of don't give ourselves a break really because we're so busy kind of being matriarchal and kind of taking care of everybody. And I know I'm definitely guilty of that, definitely. Yeah, and I know it's, it's an insightful, insightful point of view. I completely agree. I was having a conversation with one of our ambassadors, Julia, recently and we were talking about actually the power that women could have on hospitality if more women were to come and work in hospitality because there's a natural as you say there's this matriarchal holding things together but there's a natural empathy and 
level of connection that perhaps you don't receive in that quite macho male culture. But I think that, you know, at the moment with the, what was it, 70, 30% split, it'd be lovely to be able to, all the things that perhaps you would hear that deemed as signs of weakness, you can't be vulnerable, you can't show your emotions because it's a sign of weakness. Actually, I think a, a massive, massive pillars of strength. And we need both men and also women bringing about a change whereby you can actually be a little bit more you can show empathy, you can show caring, and it will actually help improve the working environment rather than damaging it as we're, we're led to believe. Well, I don't know. I think balance is always good. You know, I think always pushing to have kind of equal representation across loads of different fields. So I think that equality would be good. But I think the other thing that we often see in women is a greater reach out when it comes to help seeking behavior so if things are not feeling okay if there's just something that's a little bit out of kilter if something's not quite right often we see help seeking behavior demonstrated by women in a different way than we see in men and so like we set up a place here in Liverpool for men who specifically for men who are feeling suicidal called James's place And lots of the phone calls we got in the early days were women. And it was like, why are women ringing up? And on the calls, it was women who were ringing up because they were really worried about a guy in their lives or they were trying to gather information before they started having a conversation that might lead to the guy coming to James's place, you know. And it was really, really noticeable that that help-seeking behaviour was predominantly being led by women who were really worried about friends, brothers, uncles, dads, you know, lovers, whoever it was, boyfriends, whatever. But it was really, really interesting how they would lead. But then we get the second phone call and that would be the guy ringing. So just trying to really model that help-seeking behavior and really trying to kind of demonstrate how to do it really or how, how it might it might work and that it's not a sign of weakness, you know, the exact opposite really. But again, there was some modelling going on there that was really starting to rub off quite quickly. So, yeah, it's something that I would definitely like to see more of. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, we've gone off on a complete and utter tangent, which I love because twice now we've spoken and each time we're just like, (laughs) it's, it's like we've not seen each other for ages and we just pick up from where we left off. So. I have obviously hit record as well. So people have been listening into this now for, for cool. a good 12 minutes, which is, which I, I think, you know, this is where, especially after our last conversation, we spoke for a good 40 minutes and I was like, mm. oh, we should be recording this as well yeah. because there's so many decent stuff covered. Mm. But to try and bring it back a little bit and to gently introduce you to the, to the mm. audience, obviously, for those who don't know you, you presented a BAFTA-nominated documentary called Life After Suicide. Could you just explain a little bit to the audience exactly sort of why you put that documentary together and why it is you do the work that you do currently, please? Sure, yeah. It goes back almost 20 years. So I was living in a, we as a family were living in on the Wirral and we had two children. We had a 13-year-old and a three-year-old. So we had, well, we thought we got very lucky. We'd had a 10-year gap in between, <laughs> in between babies. And it was 2003. So there was Mark, my partner, and our two boys and I. Things were going okay, but our relationship started to break down a little bit. And we decided that completely amicably that we would live apart for a little while. We'd been together a long time. We met in school. I was in sixth form. He was in the fifth year. 
And, you know, my friends were saying to me, you know, what are you doing going out of the fifth year? And his friends were saying to him, oh, my God, you scored a sixth former. That's amazing. So there was kind of all this going on and and it was um, amazing times. And we met in 88, 1988. And so anyway, things were not going exactly as we planned, but we've been together a long time. And Mark was a chef. And he was working in a kitchen at the time, which was kind of quite fine dining and it had like a spa attached to it. So there were lots of different elements to the work that he was doing as a chef. And I was working in an art gallery and I just got my first job in the art world and I thought that things were going okay. But unfortunately, it was only three weeks later after I started working in the art gallery that I spoke to Mark In fact, actually, what happened was I got a phone call from work saying that he hadn't gone to work that day, which was really unusual. And did I know where he was? And it was that awful phone call that you get where you can hear the kitchen going in the background and you can hear everybody's busy and you know that he should be in work. And, you know, you can hear pots and pans. And and so instantly I just thought something's not right. But it wasn't until later on in that day that actually when I got home I discovered that Mark had in fact ended his life and it was very very sudden it was very very unexpected I can't begin to tell you how shocking it was and I very quickly realized that I now was a single parent and I didn't understand what had happened I didn't understand anything at that point But I knew that I had a three-year-old and a 13-year-old that I needed to to kind of carry on for and try and understand what had happened and try and navigate our way through this absolutely horrendous, tragic, shocking situation that we now found ourselves in. And that's kind of where the work started, really, because I didn't know anybody else who'd been bereaved in this way. I didn't know anybody else who had, you know, I was a widow at 32 from the morning when we all went off and the kids went to school and I went to work and I thought Mark went to work by six o'clock that night our whole lives had completely changed and I suppose it was just kind of me trying to navigate my kids through this trying to my whole family trying to understand what had happened Mark's family trying to understand our friends really led to lots and lots of conversations with other people that this had happened to And really, it was about me trying to understand and trying to get answers for my kids and trying to answer my kids' questions. That really took me into working in specifically in suicide prevention for men. And so what's actually happened in the the subsequent years is that my career in the art world, I'm very lucky to have a successful career in the art world, curating shows and working in galleries and all kinds of things. But I have always, from that day on, worked in men's suicide prevention and postvention how we support people after somebody's ended their life and I suppose lots of the work culminated in the BBC knocking on the door in 2016 and asking me to present the program the documentary that you mentioned and I suppose the 12 years in between I'd spent a long time trying to get people to talk about this you know trying to get people to talk openly and honestly about how they felt Because when we tried to piece the day together that Mark had had, we couldn't find any moment or anybody that he told about the way that he felt and how long he'd felt like that. And he hadn't told me 
he hadn't told his friends as far as we know. Nobody's ever come to me in the 20 years and said, actually, he did talk to me about this. He didn't leave a note. You know, I thought at the time there were no signs that he was feeling suicidal and or that he'd ever even contemplated ending his life before that. And now I know different, you know, it's kind of a real case of I wish I knew then what I know now. But it's been a real learning curve. And so I suppose the documentary and the chance to present the documentary was really me saying, okay, it's time to kind of put my money where my mouth is. You know, I've been trying to get people to talk about this. So now I've got to be open and honest about our experience as well. So it went on prime time, BBC One, nine o'clock. You don't kind of get any more high profile than that to put the worst time in your life on TV. And we did it and we talked to loads of different people who'd had a similar experience, people who'd felt suicidal, people who had been bereaved by suicide. And we looked at the issue as a whole. Lots of people got in touch afterwards to say that actually it had kind of helped them to know that they're not the only person that this has happened to as well. Thank you, first and foremost, for sharing, because I know that even 20 years is it must be difficult but it's such an important subject to be discussing and I know for many people listening to this now if you've been with us for the last 20 minutes you're probably thinking oh crikey this this is quite heavy but the reality of it is is that the reason it feels heavy is because people don't talk about it nearly enough when was it in late 70s early 80s that suicide was a crime wasn't it it was deemed was it deemed illegal if you had a failed suicide attempt In the UK, it was decriminalised in 61. But before that, if you tried to end your life, it was actually a criminal offence. I mean, way back in England, if you tried to end your life, you could be put in prison. And in places like Jersey and Guernsey, I think, it was still a crime until 2003. And those islands are built on their hospitality industries, you know. So again, there's loads of places in the world where it's still a criminal offence. And I think for me, it's been about where's this stigma coming from? Like, why was this beautiful, articulate, talented guy that I was fortunate enough to have two children with? Why did he not tell anybody how he was feeling? Why did he feel either the stigma or unable for whatever reason? Why couldn't he tell anybody that he was just about to make this massive massive decision we talked about what color the wallpaper was going to be we talked about what we were going to have for dinner we talked about all kinds of things and yet this massive huge decision we didn't talk about and I think for me it really opened my eyes and it made me worry that how many other people are feeling like this and not talking about it or not telling anyone or not knowing where to turn or who to tell or how to tell someone you know and so I think that's why I agreed to make the film and I'm I'm really glad I did it was a tricky decision to kind of do it and the BBC have shown it every year since but for me loads of people came forward and said actually thank you so much for for talking about this because actually I felt like that or People have come to me and said, actually, I did feel like that. And this is what helped, which is what I'm always really interested in. You know, like, tell me what made the difference, what helped. I'm I'm, I'm interested in that. It was a brilliant thing to do. And then I also got loads of weird messages, got lots and lots of people getting in touch asking if I was still single. And um, (laughs) 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 which was like amazing. I was like, oh, my God, really? 
are we doing this? <laughs> Got loads of people. <laughs> it's just bizarre how the general public react to putting really tricky, tricky stuff on television. Yeah. And yeah, so it was a pretty incredible ride. Well, I suppose in a, in a way, without diving too deeply in psychology, but after you've been so vulnerable and honest and so open on a program, people will have feel like there's a sense of connection there, right? And whether that is in a case of, I think this person might understand what I'm going through or, oh, wow, this person, I know her quite intimately now, so she must want to go on a date. <laughs> but there is, there must be something in there that actually shows some degree of empathy towards the presenter in this case, who they feel like they know and, and can resonate with. It's funny I won that. Absolutely. It was just like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I was prepared for some of the reaction, but I wasn't prepared for all of it. And in the film as well, you know, you see us eating as a family. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I just presumed that everyone ate the way that we eat. And kind of it turns out that most people don't. So, <laughs> you know, there was like a scene in the film. And, you know, I wanted to show that Mark was part of like, a family that loved him and that we act together and we laugh together. And I wanted to try and bust this stereotype of a suicidal male, just, you know, being on their own in a one bedroom flat, drinking Stella all day. Do you know what I mean? I, I kind of wanted people to see that that wasn't our reality, you know? And so people saw how we eat and saw the, how my mum cooks, which is very Italian and very big and very plentifully. And it was really funny because people would come up to me in the street in Liverpool and say, God, your din- your mum's dinners look amazing. Like, can I come around and have dinner? And so it kind of became about the food, which was, which was kind of really nice. But yeah, I just wanted to just get rid of some of the myth around what a suicidal guy looks like because I was sick of seeing these head clutching images, you know, and I, I thought he didn't look like that the last time I saw him. So I wanted to try and bust that myth. Yeah, and, and I think you've touched upon a really valuable point. And, and unfortunately, last week, last week, the week before, the week I was up in Liverpool, actually, we had been notified of five in the end in one week. And these were all hospitality professionals, all from various, both front of house and back of house. And the common theme was is that no one had a bloody clue because... You're right. In reality, there wasn't someone who was, you know, walking around, scuffing their feet on the floor, going, oh, today's a really bad day. They were operating completely normally. No obvious signs or warning triggers, potentially, that this was running through their head or it was something that they had been thinking about previously. So I guess the question is, like, moving on from knowing that this is an issue and the stats aren't re- well enough reported, you know, obviously we know that the Office for National T- Statistics says that it's one of the biggest loss of lives for men across different age groups and second biggest for women. And yet it's still, the media still don't report on it. It's still not as publicized as it should be in terms of trying to raise awareness. But the thing that we keep hearing time and time again is I just didn't know and there were no signs. But something you said earlier on was you wish you'd known then what you knew now. So what sort of things would have alerted you to those perhaps that Mark was feeling that way? I mean, I think for me, there were a couple of things. One was that I think, again, 
this idea that chefs, you know, again, he became a chef because he was a terrible waiter. We had a restaurant in Liverpool and he would spend more time wanting to know what was going on in the kitchen and having really good chats with the customers than he was kind of waiting on. So he was like a great guy, you know, that again, part of the myth is that people are always kind of silent and quiet. It was, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. And he ended up in the kitchen because he kept on dropping things as a waiter and was more interested in what was going on on top of the stove. So that's how he became a chef because he was a great guy and he was interested. And I think that what I know now is that when we're thinking about, okay, so what are these common themes that can sometimes lead someone to experience suicidal thoughts and feelings? One of the big ones is loss of relationships. So breakdown of relationships. We were in the middle of a breakup and we were trying to do it sensibly for our kids but we were still in the middle of thinking about not being together anymore. You know, relationships break up. Drugs and alcohol can affect our decision-making. His, the last place he worked, had a culture of kind of going for a beer after work. And I'm sure that's something that happens right through lots of different types of hospitality. We end up living our lives kind of in the nighttime when everyone else is kind of going home. We're just kind of getting started because we've only just finished work. You know, so there were lots of different areas that I think that I was the last person to speak to him on the phone when I eventually tracked him down and asked why he hadn't gone to work and you can imagine it you know we had a three-year-old and a 13-year-old we couldn't afford for people not to be going into work but I just thought he'd just not gone to work I didn't realize it was because he obviously wasn't feeling okay so if I'd have asked a different question during that phone call maybe I would have got a different answer you know So I think that there were things and signs that we can look out for or just taking care of people in a different way or having a different conversation or just asking the question directly, you know, are you feeling suicidal? Are you experiencing thoughts of ending your life? Tell me where you're at with what's going on with us, you know? If I'd have had a different conversation, maybe we would have had the conversation that we're always trying to encourage people to have. But I worked in an art gallery I knew about paintings and sculpture. I didn't know how important it was to ask the question directly. So I think that's why, you know, I kind of feel really strongly about the work that you're doing, that I'm doing, that we're trying to like really open up that conversation. Because I've got two boys now and my boys are 22 and 32. And suicide is still the biggest killer of males under 50 you know, I've got two males under 50. So for me, it's a no brainer to carry on doing this work because I need my kids, if they ever don't feel okay, to speak to somebody who knows how to ask the question and what to do if the answer is, yeah, I, I, I do feel like that. So I just feel as if it's so important that we do this work because I don't know, sometimes we're awake when everyone else is asleep because that's when we knock off. Yeah, you're so right. Being able to, or firstly, be aware, because we are (laughs) naturally within hospitality, we tend to be up when most people you would expect to be asleep or starting to, to wind down for the evening. So from a human being kindness point of view, especially if you work in hotels, for example, then you're probably in, you know, you should be aware of this subject matter, just so that you are able to stop someone who walks past you and says, hi, how are you doing? How was your evening? How are you? And then if they give you a a response that perhaps 
doesn't sit quite right you know whether that's gut instinct or whether there's something that just twitches and you go that didn't sound right and usually we we push it down right we go oh god that's that sounded a bit strange oh well have a lovely evening but if you're in those situations and you feel it to be able to go okay you've just said this that's a little bit concerning how are you feeling at the moment are you having thoughts of suicide but there's this twist in our stomach when we train on suicide prevention and you ask an entire room of people, right? Okay, so what would you do in this situation? You've just, you know, you've just seen this individual in a hotel. They are perhaps exhibiting some signs of risk-taking behavior, or their behavior is erratic. What do you do? And people just freeze. It's like they're not even able to say the word suicide because, well, firstly, and we know that the, there is this fear of, oh, well, what happens if I make it worse suddenly? Which, you know, I think we're, we're both very clear on the fact that clinically we know it de-escalates by talking openly about suicide but just being able to ask a question and being prepared that the response might be yes i am having this thought and sometimes it is as completely as black and white and as completely as neutral as yes i am having thoughts of ending my life currently and then having that confidence to be able just to hold that space and to be able to signpost onto relevant services and and to engage in that conversation which for many might be the first time they've actually been able to do so, right? Just because you've been bold and asked that question. If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on worldwide dispatch all funds raised from sales of these items go towards free to access e-learning content as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health okay so we're looking at the figures and i always kind of you know remind people that every single one of these figures is people like the person that i lost you know we're looking at six thousand people a year are ending their life on average in this country six thousand now that's not saying how many people are walking around with the thought in their head i mean i think you could probably times that by a hundred <laughs> and i think if people can be honest and say actually i've been there but i know what that feels like and watching somebody, you know, it's like when I meet somebody who's been bereaved by suicide and never told anybody before, their eyes kind of light up because all of a sudden there's a, a human connection with someone else that may have dipped their toe in the same water. Even the therapeutic value of just being able to say, I've kind of got an idea of how you might be feeling. That human connection. And when you think about a kitchen or when you think about a restaurant or when you think about hotels or any area of hospitality there will be people in that moment who have experienced suicidal thoughts and feelings and there will be other people experiencing them for the first time and yet if they can just be having a conversation with each other just kind of a nod just to almost say okay I, I know I know how you feel or I might have an idea of that let's have a conversation that's an incredible gift to give to somebody just that acknowledgement and you know, I don't know whether that was going on for Mark, you know, I don't know how long his kitchen family, because I think of them as a kitchen family, you know, they came to his funeral. And for some of them, it's the, it was the first time I'd met them. 
because work was busy and we had a three-year-old. So we didn't kind of go out with his mates from work. And yet, I don't know how long they kept him going for without them even knowing it. You know, maybe he thought about this before and maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody had said the right thing and it kept him going. The frustration is that I'll never know. But the worrying thing is that maybe this is happening now. And maybe if we were just a bit more open and honest with each other and just checked in on a slightly deeper level and we're just a little bit more honest about our own experiences, maybe for some people the outcome might be a bit different. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, it's that age-old thing in hospitality, in most industries, but hospitality is specific. And people tend to chuckle when I say this, but you walk into an environment and you go, you're right, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And you head down and you keep on doing your mise en place or you polish your glasses. And never, ever do we tend to stop and go, what's happening in your world then? How are you doing? Like, haven't seen you for a few days, actually. Have you been off? Have you been on holiday? What's going on? And being prepared to be able to be have a courageous conversation right ask with confidence and be prepared for that person to go yeah i had a really nice break and i went away to malta for four days to see family or oh no i was off because i wasn't well oh really yeah what's going on is there anything that i can help with would you like to talk about it and being able to put yourself in that position of it's not vulnerability as such but just being an empathic human being rather than going oh, well, your problem, not mine, I'll see you later. And, and and I think we need to practice that because it's not something that we, we're not born with that skill, right? And we're certainly not taught it either. No. And, and I think, again, for us in hospitality, and as I say, we had a restaurant for 23 years, so I've, I've seen this day in, day out. It's about getting in, it's about, it's about putting your game face on, it's about putting your whites on, it's, and it's about cracking on, and it's about what have we got in the book, what's coming in, the deliveries are coming. You know, so sometimes it'll be a case of saying to someone, do you want to come in a bit earlier? Have you got 10 minutes for a chat? Actually making sure people get proper breaks where they can actually, and again, it's up to managers and head chefs to program this stuff in. And I think that kitchens, for me, certainly what I'm experiencing now, I think things, and through things like the podcast, you know, your podcast as well and the training, is I think things are changing. I hope things are changing. I hope that the kitchens of the past are not the kitchens of the future where we're actually having different conversations and we're really thinking about the experience of the people who are creating what we're consuming. And their experience of doing that needs to be fulfilling and not just kind of pressure, pressure, pressure and and blame game if something goes wrong or if a whole service goes wrong, you know, one person getting the blame or one person being hauled over the coals in front of everybody, which I've seen happen. So I think hopefully things are changing and the tone of things are changing. But again, for me, it was quite funny because the morning after, because it was my dad who had the restaurant where we've all worked as a family, we've all done our stints. He, the next morning after, unfortunately, we'd found out what had happened and Mark was no longer with us. The next morning, my dad, this very little Greek guy who wasn't great at communicating his feelings all of the time, turned up at my house and knocked on my door and I opened the door and bearing in mind, this is like 12 hours after after we just realized what had happened. He kind of stood on the doorstep and he handed me something and I just put both my hands out automatically to take what it was he was giving me. And when I looked, it was two full-size chickens with their heads still on and their feathers still on. And he just handed both their feet to me. And I was just like, 
what? And he couldn't say any words. And what he was trying to say was, I can't make this situation better, but I can feed you. I can, you know, this is what I can do. And I simply took them to the kitchen and put them in the bin because I'd never plucked a chicken before in my life. And that morning was definitely not the time to start. But for him, it was trying to communicate through food, through the way that he knew, the way that he'd been brought up. He was trying to communicate that he couldn't make this better. And so he gave me what he thought was was going to help. And it turns out it didn't. <laughs> but the love in that gesture, you know, for him to have gone to the market and bought chickens, you know, and kind of brought them to the house, the love in that gesture, the caring in that gesture was just incredible. And I think anybody outside of hospitality listening to this podcast would probably think that he was smart. But I think people who cook for people and care for people know know what that gesture meant. Yeah, right. And I think that's the thing about empathy. When you, I personally would consider myself very empathic in regards to I can walk into a situation or a room and feel that something's not quite right. But actually putting that empathy into practice was so difficult for me because sympathy was such an easy thing. I felt something wasn't right. And I was like, oh, well, sorry, you know, that's your issue. But what you're saying there is your dad actually, in his own way, showed empathy by calling a spade a spade and going this is shit and nothing i'm ever going to be able to say is going to take any of this pain away but here's what i can do in in my own way to help and and that's important you don't, i don't think you necessarily have had to ever experience anything particularly to be able to show empathy it's just that ability to be able to go recognizing that it is terrible it is hard and it's the same with bereavement isn't it I've, I've made a conscious effort not to say i'm sorry when someone's lost someone because i don't want to be sorry because when i've lost someone that just evokes feelings of anger and frustration and almost like uh, well what have you done and so now i just say to them like nothing that i can say is going to make this present moment any different but when you need me i'm here and when you want to talk, I'm available. Or if you want to have a drink or whatever it might be, I've got your back when you're ready. That also takes a bit of confidence, though, right? practice. I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and having been bereaved in this really, really shocking, this way that took years to sink in, you know, I, I can't tell you how long it took for kind of the enormity of what had happened and, and to, to kind of start to process that was, was a very, very long journey. But I think that the thing is to keep saying that, you know, to keep saying to somebody, look, I know it, you know, it was six months ago and you might not want to talk about it, but actually I'm here, I'm here when you're ready to. So not just saying that once when it happened, because everyone says it, you know, my house was like, crew railway station for a month after it happened because everybody was there everybody was helping but a year later the core people were there you know my core family my core friends and a year later even less so for some of us and especially when someone dies by suicide it can be really really difficult for people to articulate and to ask and to talk and to open up conversations that actually we're all really scared of having and I think for me, my true friends around me and my family kind of just checked in a few times. You know, it wasn't just about checking in once. It was about kind of, you know, I can't imagine how you're feeling, but let's go for a coffee or I don't know, just keeping checking in just now and again, really kind of keeping that door open. Because as a bereaved person and lots of people who work in hospitality, again, experience this. 
it's like all there in the immediate moment but then afterwards people don't refer to it at all and sometimes it's because staff have changed and teams have changed and maybe they didn't know that that person worked here but I think kind of continuing to check in and just kind of doing it in a meaningful way I think does go a long way yeah definitely and I want to bring it back to something that you mentioned about hospitality being certain certain environments you know quite fast-paced quite tough environments we've actually as of yesterday, we had some stats through from a psychological survey. I can't mention the company name, but the stats showed that 59% of respondents out of 141 people across multiple sites were in struggling or in crisis with their mental health. And this was from a company-wide survey across all levels. One in five employees were at critical risk of burnout with a further one in four at high burnout risk. And so for anyone out there listening and thinking, well, do you know what, this isn't going to, it's probably not going to happen to us. We're different. This is a business who are very good, like you know, being established for, for years and underneath people are still not doing well and they haven't ever spoken to their manager. They've not spoken to anyone else and they are in this daily battle every day trying to work out what's going on with themselves and not being able to. So this is from a, a general psychological occupational health study It's just staggering, isn't it, really, those numbers? It is absolutely staggering. But I think it, for me, you know, I get asked all the time about burnout whenever I'm speaking publicly. And I don't know if people know what burnout is. I think it might have become one of those phrases that we throw around, but actually people don't realise what it is and what it looks like. When I was really close to burning out a couple of years ago, I didn't see it. (laughs) It was someone else, you know, it was members of my family who said, I don't think that things are okay with you. (laughs) You know, it's like, because I didn't realize until I was checking my emails on Christmas Day, the site of my, you know, I still have an old fashioned paper diary that I always use. And the sight of my diary, I caught sight of my diary on my desk and it made me feel physically sick. It made my stomach turn over. Like, you know, when you were on the fair, when you were little, And it was that that made me realize and other people saying that I was being like a real knock and I was kind of being really short with people and my sleep was disturbed. And it wasn't until I, who've been talking about mental health for like, I don't know, 18 18 years at that point, kind of thought, oh shit, this is happening. And I didn't see it. It was because other people were pointing it out. So I, I think burnout is, again, it sounds like a little package of, thoughts and feelings that some of us have but actually I think burnout looks different for lots of different people because I didn't see it I I didn't see it happening to me I completely resonate with what you just said and I know we spoke about this off air when we last spoke but it's within the mental health sphere when you're so passionately campaigning for change and you're trying to explain to people like you're not built like superheroes. You know, you, we might like to think that we're completely impervious to anything that life throws at us. But in reality, we experience stress. It's a natural, perfectly normal part of life. And as a result, anyone that experiences stress and cortisol is at risk of burnout. The thing that you don't get with it, especially in our line of work as well, we're telling these people and then you get this There's no warning signs in terms of, by the way, you're slipping into burnout. In fact, it goes the complete opposite. Your brain goes, I am superhuman. I can keep doing this. All I need is a couple of bottles of beer on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. 
and I'm just going to skip exercise and I don't really need to speak to anyone because that can wait till tomorrow. Then, oh, do you know what? I don't need to shower today. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, perhaps I will just do an extra four hours work today because if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it. And then you just get stuck in that cycle. And before you know it, that just accelerates. And it's not until something happens like for me, smashing a glass and, and not feeling anything and my physical health starting to slip as well as my mental health that as you say someone goes uh are you right are you okay you don't seem to use yourself and you're like yeah yeah no adamant i'm fine but all of a sudden if you're lucky you can catch it at that stage which by then is already too late but you know you have to then go fuck i've just been completely and utterly stitched up by my own brain Absolutely. And I think a piece of work that we sometimes do when, I, when I'm working with like emergency services, for instance, we do an exercise where we make a list of our risk factors, you know, what, what might make us feel a bit risky, what might put us at risk, what pressures in our lives might not be great for us. But then it, on the same piece of paper, we do a list of protective factors, you know, what are our individual protective factors. So that might be going for a run, it might be going for a I don't know, it might be cooking, it might be cleaning, it might be whatever it is. What are the factors that are offering you protection from burnout, protection psychologically and mental health wise? And I think for some people, they haven't realised up until that point that you can actually make a list of these things that are your your personal protective factors. When other people are saying, actually, are you okay? It might be the fact that we've got to dial up the protective factors, you know what I mean? So there are things that we all do naturally to take care of ourselves. And sometimes they're the things that stop because we haven't got time. So we haven't got time to go for a run. haven't got time to go to the gym. haven't got time to cook for ourselves well because we've we've spent 12 hours cooking for everybody else. So we're going to go home and have a pot noodle, you know, and that's definitely speaking from experience. (laughs) And I think sometimes if you just make a list or have a conversation about what's working for you, you know, how do you take care of yourself? What are your protective factors? I think sometimes that can really help us to just have a little moment where we're actually considering our own self-care and what are those things that are keeping us safe you know for some people it might be amazing sex it might be something that's kind of sitting down reading a book having more than a five minute shower I don't know whatever it is that makes you feel good and balances out the stress and balances out the risk is something that I think we don't pay attention to enough I think for me I'd have everybody listening to this kind of make a little list in anywhere on a little post-it write your protective factors down write down what they are and if you haven't got any then we need to find you some protective factors I absolutely love that I was chatting to funny enough one of the teams each training I, I guess I think although you may agree with me you may disagree here but with training although you've got some of your core objectives it's very much dependent on the group that you're training and it can take so many different twists and turns. And sometimes you'll have this bloody aha moment. And I was training a team, that team in Liverpool, and we started talking about unhelpful and helpful coping strategies. And what do we do? What does it look like when you're being triggered by stress? And someone said, well, you know, when I'm stressed, the best thing to do is to open up my phone and I scroll through Instagram. And I said, okay, why? What are you looking for? And they're like, I don't know, just to release, just to get away. And I was like, okay, how's that working out for you? How, how have you felt? Well, I feel shit about myself afterwards because I'm looking at 
people who've had photoshopped bodies and living lives in Maldives. They're rich and successful or what appears to be all of this falsity. I said, okay, so you understand that when you're feeling stressed, you're engaging in this in this unhelpful mechanism, which is okay in small doses. But you know, if that's something that's your default, what else can you do? And they're like, well, when I'm scrolling through Instagram, I'm not getting any of the chores done, or I'm not looking after myself, or I haven't spoken to my kids. And, and you're like, well, great. Already here, you've got exactly as you're saying, your protective and, and your, your non-protective mechanisms. And I think we all just need to be a little bit more honest with ourselves and conscious and go and it's okay to indulge right if you've had a bad day and you do want to go down the pub with your mates or whatever it might be then you are okay to do that but then understanding that when you get that sudden twist in your stomach that goes oh yeah do you know what now i'm out now i could go that you're going to have to try and put that circuit breaker in place how do you spot that behavior how do you stop it and then what do you swap it with that's, that's healthy and more sustainable Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, I think, and I think everybody's protective factors or self-care is different, but I think it's something that, you know, I always love it when I hear about different restaurants that have opened, but actually they're closed two days a week and you know, they're closed, not because they haven't got any customers because they've got way too many customers, but actually they're giving the whole of the kitchen a break. I really, really love that concept of everybody just having two days off and then giving their all for like the rest of the time, you know, but I think it's like an amazing way to start that everybody's just putting their own it's not a choice you don't choose whether you're going to come in on shift that day the place is locked down so you're not going in I just think that sometimes that kind of setting that tone for self-care setting that tone for putting people rather than kind of plates first is an amazing way to go and I think you get more out of your teams if you do that if you set that tone if you if you're taking care of yourself and you're setting that tone I think it's definitely the way to go yeah, I would agree. There's two things that you mentioned there, actually, which is one, lead by fucking example. It's all very well and good getting your team to do 35, 40 hour weeks because you feel like you're doing them a favor. But trust me, from anyone who's ever been young and wants to make an impression, or even if you're not young and you want to make an impression and progress within a business, your boss can tell you, have five days off a week. It's perfectly okay. But if you're looking at them doing seven days a week, eight hour weeks, then you're just going, no, I feel guilty now. I can't have that time off because you don't. And so lead by bloody example. And the other thing is, if you are prepared to lead by example, do shut the business for two days, because it's not just the fact that, yes, all your team get a day off, but it's the fact that they're not getting those micro stressors. They're not worrying about what they haven't done the day before. They're not suddenly concerned that, you know, when they pick up their phone and they see someone phoning them, that there's going to be a problem that they have to be called in for. And to be quite frank, I think with most businesses, you're going to have those days where you're actually making a lost leader on one or two days of the week. So do yourself a favor and shut during those days. Consolidate. Absolutely. You witnessed when we were on the call last week when we were planning this, <laughs> you witnessed what I do to take care of myself now because I'd spent about 10 years on stage kind of lying about what, <laughs> what I was doing to take care of myself. So now I have to actually do something <laughs> because I was just like standing up there saying all the right things, you know. That literally, I mean, it's like you and I are, are inside each other's brains because I was just about to say, so Angela, <laughs> tell me, where is the bread? <laughs> <laughs> which I promised you I would throw into the conversation, but you brought it up. You brought it up before I got a chance. So where is the bread, Angela? 
only because I've got one on the go now. So yeah, I started making sourdough. So my my brother-in-law came over from Copenhagen and, and noticed that I wasn't great and I was knackered and I wasn't myself. And he made me a, a sourdough starter before he left to go back to Copenhagen, bought me a book about sourdough and left it with me. And that was about three years ago. And then publicly got on my Twitter once he'd gone back to Copenhagen, was literally tweeting to me so everyone could see, where's the bread? You know, <laughs> I was like, his, he was like tweeting pictures of his like amazing loaves. And so I just thought, well, my competitive edge got the better of me. And so I started making sourdough loaves. And now I've got an Instagram called Superstar Sourdough, because I think sourdough is the superstar of the bread world. And so now I number my loaves because they're kind of each one's made with love. So I'm up to loaf 233, which you saw coming out the oven last week. So, yeah, so I, I make sourdough because it means that I can't be touching a screen or I can't I can't, I can't be doing anything with my hands because I've got them kind of wrist deep in, in flour and water and salt. So that's what I've been doing. And I absolutely love it. Oh, I was very, very fortunate to see. I mean, unfortunately, we don't have smell of vision at this moment in time. You know, virtual technology <laughs> is great. It allows us to speak to people from around the world that we never would have met before, but we still can't smell that freshly baked bread. I feel still I can't feel smell most, bread. <laughs> oh, I feel most disheartened. Yeah. At some stage, I will have to pick up one of your sourdough loaves when I'm next in the area. Absolutely. I'll make you one. Yeah, or even try it myself. Do you know what? I went through that stage over lockdown of making focaccia because, well, everyone was doing it. And I thought, I've never actually made mm, any bread before. Mm. And I found it. I did find it so therapeutic. Really? Yeah. There were moments where the dough was too sticky. Then all of a sudden you were in a right old mess because it's all over your hands. And then you have to think about how you get out of it. But when you actually make something and you've got a final product at the end of it that you can slather in butter and eat and go, yeah, right. That that was good. You know, you can punch the dough if you want, or you can gently knead it. But there's so many different ways that that whole process, you have to be patient because you can't rush it, right? Absolutely. And I think the thing is that you think naturally, because you're really, really busy, that giving you something else to do that needs feeding and keeping warm and, you know, is going to be like an extra layer of stress. But actually, it's like a different thing. There's something really nurturing about being able to make something that everyone else can eat that's kind of just flour, water and salt. And there's just something really reductive and going right back to basics about that. And I think for me, it's definitely been like, I've found like my main kind of protective factor, you know, and and, it, and it's a really good thing. And my family are massively benefiting from it. So, <laughs> and it just feels as if it's like a communal thing as well. You know, they get the olive oil out and they have a conversation about it and, they, and they're not shy in their criticism. You know, they'll tell you if something's like, been a bit overproved or a bit underbaked or whatever you know they're not shy about it but there's just something amazing about doing something with your hands and and actually creating something that other people can I don't know it's why lots of you guys become chefs in the first place you know creating something out of amazing ingredients and just kind of sharing it you know or bringing kind of pleasure to people and it sounds really simple but actually it's it's kind of I don't know. I think it's what prevented me from burning out, really. But I, I just I remember when Mark was training to be a chef and he went through that. Do you all go through this thing where you start making potato rosties? Do you all start off making this, this really simple? Do you all have to learn how to make these things? Because like we were so sick of eating them. We were like eating them like all the time because he was basically trialing his recipes on us like 
It was crazy. So, <laughs> so I was the same with the bread. Yes, yeah. It usually involves carbohydrates of some weird shape or form. For me, it's roasties. Trying to get that perfect roasty, making sure you've got the right Maris Piper <laughs> or you've got your King Edward. You know, it's got to be in the right the right season. Not too much sugar, not too much starch. You know, making sure you've got the right fat. You're not leaving it in for too long. I don't know. I don't think I could ever get bored of rosties or roasties, though. Just mm-hmm. keep feeding me. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> and I think that brings us to a, a, a very hungry and very appetizing close. But so I want to thank you, Angela, for, for having such a frank, open conversation about something which I know is still still very difficult. And I hope that for those out there who are, who are listening to this still now, it's it prompts you to to learn more i mean you do a lot of work in this particular field so are there any resources or content that you can signpost to people for assistance definitely i just want to say thank you so much for having me on it's been incredible to have this conversation with you i think the work you're doing is amazing and i was delighted to kind of learn more about it i think for me one of the resources that i always recommend is the hub of hope which is a free app I'm a trustee of the Hub of Hope and basically it's a free app. It's available throughout the UK and now in Northern Ireland as well. And basically you can just put your postcode into the app and it will come up and tell you what's around you. So the support services that are around you, support services for mental health and some physical health as well. There are loads of different resources on there for different diagnosis, for different experiences. There's a bereavement part to the app as well. And if you just have a look on that, again, it's free, completely free. But if you know somebody who you think is struggling or somebody who might just benefit or somebody who wants to give a bit back, actually, someone who's been helped and kind of wants to give a bit back, then they can have a look on the Hub of Hope and you can just find where you might be able to go and do some volunteering or you might be able to go to a support group if you need to or just the right phone number. So have a look at the Hub of Hope. You can download it on Android or you can download it on Apple and it's free. There's a website as well. So you can just have a look at that. So Hub of Hope, I'd definitely recommend that. Wonderful. And I think Jake and I have been playing message ping pong for quite some time. So oh, have it's a you? very over oh, yeah, overdue a coffee. So to sit down and talk about yeah, how we can work together, how the Hub of Hope and also the Burnt Chef Project can start to work together. We have a massive audience, so our downloads are in sort of 112 countries now. If people aren't necessarily in the UK and they you know, would need some assistance with this, are there any international enterprises or is there any sort of best port of call for anyone who wants assistance? I think whichever country you're in, I think there is always something. It's just a case of finding it. And I think just looking for help or linking in with whoever is your kind of primary care provider or your doctor or whatever, I think that's usually a good way to go. But again, have a look at the hub because if you look at the hub, you can get it from anywhere in the world. You can just have a look at it. You might not be able to access all the services, but you can certainly have a have a look at it. And it might kind of, I don't know, give you an idea of different services in your country or your area that you might be able to um, contact. So yeah, it will always give you an answer. It will always give you an idea of where you might look in your in your own country. Perfect. Thank you. And just for reference, if anyone does want to learn more specifically about this subject matter or how to support those who have recently come into contact with suicide, then we do provide free training on the Burnt Chef Academy, which can also be downloaded on Android and iPhone and also accessible through the World Wide Web on your normal browser as well. So 
in there, there'll be a whole host of content, education, and also signposting to resources in various parts around the world. So do check that out. But Angela, thank you ever so much. And looking forward to getting a date in the diary where we can meet up and share some bread. I'm definitely hungry for it. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be wonderful. And again, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. So if anyone wants to get in touch or there's any other information that I can give to people, really, really happy. And I will tweet about this podcast as well so that people can find you as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Is it just Superstar Sourdough they can find you at or are there other dresses? No, you can find me under Angela Samata as well. So just at Angela Samata on Twitter and the same on Instagram as well. Lovely. Angela, thanks ever so much. <laughs>